My name is Frédéric Simon. I'm the Energy and Environment Editor of your Active, and I will be your host for today's event, which is titled Navigating the Energy Transition, Implementing Clean Hydrogen Initiatives in the EU. Now, this event uh, comes at a time when policymakers are busy uh, adopting uh, the uh, market uh, package, the, the proposed hydrogen and decarbonized uh, gas market package, it's called. Uh, that was tabled almost uh, two years ago now, and which is heading towards uh, potentially a final agreement uh, in the coming uh, months. So how far have we actually gone in adopting those rules? What obstacles still need to be lifted in order to implement hydrogen projects in Europe? And how can regulation be adapted to make those projects actually happen on the ground? To debate these topics today, I have the pleasure of, of welcoming uh, Maxim Peters to the far end uh, from myself. He's from the port of Antwerp, Bruges. Next to him is Klaus-Dieter Borkhardt. He's former Deputy Director General at the European Commission's DG Energy and now adjunct professor at the Copenhagen School of Energy Infrastructure. Next to him is Maria Cecilia Salvadores. She's chair of the European Hydrogen Backbone, an initiative uh, for more uh, than 32 gas network operators in Europe. And finally, next to me is Mr. Jerzy Buzik, former Polish Prime Minister, now with the European Parliament's Industry Committee for the EPP Group. We had a last-minute uh, cancellation, unfortunately, and this is Daria Nochevnik. Uh, she's Special Advisor on Hydrogen for the COP28. Uh, she had to cancel at the last minute for health reasons. Uh, we hope she gets uh, better soon, of course. So, uh, thanks to all our panelists uh, for joining today. We'll start with a short series of introductory statements, and then we'll uh, move on to um, a panel discussion, which will also include questions from the audience. To put questions uh, to the panelists, you need to use the Slido platform, so that applies um, if you're online, obviously, but also for those who want to put questions who are with us today in, uh, in the room, please use the Slido platform for that. And you're actually uh, seeing now on the screen the QR code uh, to access the platform with the hashtag uh, hydrogen initiatives to access uh, the uh, event. Um, I think that's all for me when it comes to the introduction. So without further ado, let me turn to you, Maxim Peters, with this rather uh, broad and introductory uh, question um, about you know, your perspective on the future hydrogen value chain uh, in Europe. What are your expectations from policymakers in order to make these hydrogen projects uh, actually happen? Uh, first of all, thanks for inviting us at the table. Uh, at Sport Venture Bruges, we're the largest chemical hub in Europe. Uh, we're also a major energy hub. 18% of the natural gas in Europe is actually coming through Bruges, see Bruges, part of our port platform. So hydrogen is key to us. Uh, getting that stable, secure, uh, sustainable green energy supply and feedstock supply is key. Otherwise, industry will not be able to keep here. Maritime routes will vanish towards us. So we heavily invest in this hydrogen value chain. And actually, it's quite easy. What do you need? You need production, you need infrastructure, you need offtake. 
in the past years, we saw a lot of developments, a lot of announcements, uh, but luckily we also see a lot of projects moving forward. We really see FRDs being taken, for instance, on the export project NEOM, and a big one, uh, local production projects like Plug Power in Antwerp. Uh, we really see these projects moving forward on the production side. Of course, we need infrastructure, which is key. For us, ports infrastructure is the, are the basics, otherwise we cannot uh, thrive. Uh, we really see that, especially in Northwest Europe, moving forward. Let's hope in all of Europe, of course, we have this hydrogen backbone interconnected between all production and demand centers in Europe. Uh, in Belgium specifically, we have this plan by 2026 in operation in the port, connecting to Germany by 2028 and neighboring countries. But on the demand side, we really see a bit of uh, uh, a problem or an issue. As we all know, the chemical sector is struggling today. Uh, we had the energy crisis, we had a uh, COVID crisis, uh, messing up the logistical value chains. Uh, we have many, many crises impacting the chemical industry and we really see this demand side struggling. Because, of course, as we know, there is a cost gap to be bridged for the energy and feedstock supply, namely hydrogen and derivatives. Uh, so there we really see that that's, um, not only the, the, the stick, but also the carrot should be there. Because, of course, we have these targets, this very much needed targets to reach climate neutrality, but we also need a carrot. Otherwise, industry will leave Europe and just simply move elsewhere to produce. Uh, so on that level, we really hope to see Europe moving forward with initiatives like the Hydrogen Bank, but with appropriate funds to support on the CapEx and OPEX side these uh, missing part, this key missing part of the value chain. All right, thank you. Klaus Dieter-Borkat, your perspective um, and you know, your thoughts as to what policymakers can do to, to get this market and this supply chain going. Also from my side first, thank you very much for having invited me here. A very interesting debate, I hope. Um, I would like to uh, make my opening statements more from the regulatory side because uh, when I uh, look at uh, the state of play of the trial of discussions, what I can see, also what firms up as the final outcome of the regulatory framework, I can imagine that this regulatory framework should work quite well, um, but more in the light of an established hydrogen market where you have already mature, mature uh, supply, customer base, and also a well-developed infrastructure. I can really see that, but you have to imagine that we will have this mature market. But we will not have this mature market from day one, and uh, Maxim has just, just pointed to one element, the demand uh, has to be there, the customer side. And here I have my doubts whether what is currently uh, developed as a regulatory framework has integrated the flexibility in the rules that is needed in order to support the kickoff of the hydrogen market. I will give you uh, an example of what I mean here, because I, I do recognize, of course, that uh, in um, the, the framework as it uh, is on the table today in the trilogues, there are elements of flexibility that they say until 2030 you can do this or that. Uh, but in my view, this is not enough because on the other side, the flexibility instruments that are built in are not, uh, let's say, equally distributed. Because, and here comes my example, I give you the example of existing hydrogen operators that are currently there. The, uh, the text that are on the table for discussions foresee here 
at least uh, from the council uh, side, uh, foresee a blank check for uh, these uh, operators because they uh, can ask for a derogation of almost all regulatory rules uh, that are applicable uh, to everybody else. So they can continue without any time limit set in. They can continue business like uh, as usual, not being bound uh, by rules like third party access, the unbundling rules, what have you. Mm -hmm. So there you give them all the flexibility that you uh, want. On the other side, and here it's the commission and the parliament's text, uh, is doing the other thing. It's building up roadblocks for the development of uh, infrastructure by uh, setting or abolishing cross-border tariffs. We will discuss it, so I will not come uh, to this. But this is something uh, on the other side which will hinder uh, the fast development of a European hydrogen infrastructure. So, in my view, I, I would have uh, three demands to the uh, legislator or to the policymaker, as you have put it. Uh, the first is, what really matters at the beginning uh, is that you have to help, or the regulatory framework has to help creating business cases. And in order to do that, the most important thing is that you need targeted instruments that reduce the cost difference between um, the clean and the fossil uh, technologies. And here you have a whole bunch of instruments that you can imagine. You have uh, direct subsidies, uh, carbon uh, contracts for difference, fiscal incentives, public guarantees, uh, and also creating targets for uh, the markets for hydrogen products. Uh, and uh, here, I also have uh, my doubts. There are a lot of targets. And I just take one target. It's the uh, target on hydrogen on uh, the Repower EU. 20 million tons, 10 million domestically produced, 10 million uh, imported. No, but what does that mean? It means investments of 500 billion euros. It means 40 gigawatts of uh, complementary new installed renewable electricity capacities. And it means final investment decisions in 2025. That is what is behind these targets. So I personally have my doubts that these targets with what I have just said, what is needed in order to achieve those targets, can be achieved by 2030. So in my view, what would be needed, and this is only partly uh, implemented, are legally binding targets with very, very concrete steps uh, to reach these targets. Because targets are important, uh, but they have to be binding, they have to uh, bite, and they have to be achievable. And maybe um, a last um, point uh, is, um, what I can see is also in the discussions now, I still lack a bit the overarching uh, principles, um, the, uh, how do we want with this regular, new regulatory framework achieve all three objectives of the European energy policy. 
uh, that means sustainability, of course, but also affordability and security of supply. What I haven't seen yet is that this analysis, that all three objectives, which needs, in my view, to be pursued in parallel, are really reflected properly in what is currently discussed. Okay, thanks. Um, bit of a reality check there regarding the targets. Um, let me turn to you, Maria um, Cecilia. So, from your perspective, um, what do you think policymakers should be doing in order to get the supply chain started in Europe? Thank you, Simon, and thank you very much for inviting uh, European Hydrogen Backbone at this debate. Uh, we are now uh, 33 TSOs across Europe with the recent incorporation of transit gas from, from Switzerland. Uh, of, of these uh, 33 TSOs, uh, there are 24 uh, TSOs, member, TSOs from 24 member states, from UK, from Norway, from Ukraine as well. Um, the European Hydrogen Initiative was set up uh, by mid 2020 uh, in order to collaborate to put forward a vision for the future pan-European hydrogen uh, dedicated infrastructure. Uh, since then, um, the TSOs that are members of EHB, uh, we have made substantial investment and, and tangible, tangible progress in concrete uh, projects uh, across the five corridors we define as the key routes for the supply uh, of hydrogen to meet those targets that uh, my colleagues just mentioned. Um, there are currently several projects at the fifth stage, at the front-end engineering design, which are expected to be operational in, in as early as two or three years from now if FID is taken positively uh, fairly soon. Um, the, those projects will establish the first 3,000 kilometers of the future European transmission network. And there are in total 32 projects right now anticipating commissioning uh, by 2030, which will account for around 20,000 uh, kilometers of pipelines. Um, so TSOs, the industry is making concrete actions and, 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 and steps to enable the build out of this uh, hydrogen backbone uh, at the European level in accordance to the urgency of the Repower EU, which I cannot agree more with, with, with Klaus Dieter. Um, but we need, uh, indeed, regulatory and financial support. First of all, the uptake of, of hydrogen is one of the biggest risks uh, to the development of the European hydrogen backbone. Um, as infrastructure, of course, should be planned uh, in consideration of long-term future demand. Uh, the ramp in, in the transitional phase, the ramp up of the hydrogen market is, is, uh, needs to be de-risked if we want to proceed ahead with our projects. There are also project implementation challenges. The timelines are uh, crucial. Uh, it's an aspect that also policy can influence uh, clearly, either accelerating or um, delaying the implementation of the projects. Here we have permitting issues, uh, coordination between countries, and also coordination across different energy carriers uh, is key. The availability of, uh, of a skilled workforce is an issue as well. Uh, all these are factors that, can, uh, that policymakers can work to uh, streamline the build out of these infrastructures or 
if not will hinder its progress. But uh, what, what is very key, uh, and, and also uh, following up what, was what uh, Closita just mentioned, that the risking of the, of the project, of the business case in the transitional phase, is what is more urgent in our view. Uh, in, the, in the market uh, ramp-up phase, uh, market operators we are unable to, to recap, we will be unable to recap initial investments because the, through, the throughput of the pipes will be too low, so tariffs will be too high for customers and users' willingness to pay will, will, not, will not cover the revenues we need. And, some, and someone has to provide for some warranty in order to cover this risk premium. So during this period, this early period, external financial su support will play a, a crucial role, as I say, in the risk in network investment. Over time, in, in a more mature uh, hydrogen market, as throughput will increase, Tariffs will be sufficient, but uh, we need uh, uh, we need to, to to provide for these early phases in order to to go to the next phase of, of market maturity. So, basically, um, some uh, there are many instruments. Uh, we will probably talk about all those, but uh, the, the need is there. Okay, thank you very much for giving us that uh, overview from your perspective. And so, Mr. Jerzybozek. Uh, the policymakers' perspective now on what you think is needed to get this market started. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for your question, but first of all, for the possibility to discuss some issues with all of you. I understand that all the remarks and questions by, given by, by the speakers, three of you, I addressed personally to me as a rapporteur. <laughs> so I am uh, really in a very difficult situation how to answer your expectations and to assure you that I will do everything to make it possible. Well, generally speaking, it is the first question we should answer immediately if it is really necessary to go to, to hydrogen. Because electricity from renewables is our solution, main solution. So we should always say uh, that very short answer should be to anybody that uh, if we are serious about our goals on 2030-2050, uh, climate issue of course, and uh, if we would like to decarbonize uh, some heavy industry sectors like steel or fertilizers or heavy transport, maritime, uh, air transport, maybe also road transport. It's absolutely necessary to go towards hydrogen because uh, electricity is not enough. We cannot produce fertilizers from electricity, unfortunately. And it's uh, similarly in the case of coke, coking coke, if you want to replace uh, coking coal as, uh, 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 in, 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 in producing uh, 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 in, in our steel industry, it's necessary to go maybe at the beginning to natural gas for some years and then to hydrogen at the end. We cannot go 
with uh, alone electricity in such a case. It's the same with, with air transport. It's a very important answer because I am still questioned why you are going to hydrogen, why it is necessary. Electricity is enough, they are saying uh, something very seriously. So what we need, I'm trying to, to, to listen to you first of all, all the stakeholders, if it is possible during our meeting to, 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 to listen to you, not too much answer everything, but to listen because it's, it's my, my duty today. We need um, certainty, legal certainty, of course, incentives to create our infrastructure. So financing and gas and hydrogen are interlinked and we should be always serious about that, not to think in such a light way because of course, of course repurposing of gas infrastructure is our goal, very important. And we, won't, we would like to see it in, in a wider perspective, not only gas and uh, hydrogen. Hydrogen may be more important than gas, it's another issue. Uh, but also electricity, because um, electrification is, of course, the first in, this, um, in, this, in our uh, way to 2050. Um, uh, uh, neutrality and all the synergies between electricity, gas and hydrogen are absolutely necessary. So we need, as um, some of you mentioned, we need of course regulated EU-wide hydrogen market, we need uh, system integration but also security of supply. Um, um, Professor, Professor Borhardt, well I don't know if you are more professor or or director, director in a, a, a DG Energy, which was a great work, uh, well, I thought for 15 years, but you, uh, you explained to me a few minutes ago that it was much more. So uh, for me, you are still director in uh, DG Energy, not so much scientist, but I admire your, your work today. So let me underline once again at the beginning, because I understand that we've got discussion in front of us. I would uh, particularly like to learn uh, stakeholders' views on creating a tariff model, for example, which is absolutely necessary. We want to create infrastructure. Uh, some kind of tariffs are absolutely, and also cross-border tariffs hydrogen network is absolutely necessary. So I don't think that I can say anything more because I don't know the result of trialogue at all. We will, we, we will end it there, but there will be more questions for you later on, I'm sure. Um, thank you very much. So let me start uh, now and kick off the uh, debate with a question that we'll put to all of you uh, on the panel, is how you see, and I'll start with you, uh, Maria Cecilia, um, how do you see the state of, um, of demand on the European hydrogen market looking forward to 2030, 2050? And how do you think regulators can help solve this chicken and egg problem between supply and demand? Because on the supply side, there's a tendency to say, well, let's look first how much demand there is. And on the demand side, uh, 
there can be this, this tendency to say, well, let's look how we can get the, the hydrogen through, whether with pipelines or shipping or whatever. The demand is there, but I, I, I agree that between the aspirational targets uh, set by our EU plan and red three uh, binding targets for industry and transport, there's still uh, a long way. Um, there are no targets uh, yet for the residential commercial, but there is demand there. The demand, uh, I, I fully agree, we are serious about our targets. Uh, demand will be policy driven. What is important is that the, the industry in Europe is moving ahead and we, there are plenty of projects for production. The infrastructure is a key enabler. Without infrastructure, those projects are too risky. If you start developing at, at the scale we need uh, hydrogen supply, you will need to channel, the, to, to reach your customers. And this is where the infrastructure can break that chicken and egg uh, problem. But it's not without uh, its own challenges, as I, as I mentioned because the demand initially will be low and will, this ramp up is, is, is inevitable. It's not, the, it's not the first market that starts with low uh, demand and then uh, will increase over time. We think uh, according to our analysis that we will reach full demand for hydrogen by, 20, by 2050. So there will be development of new infrastructures in, the next, in this decade and the next decade. So it will be more of a staged development approach that you see materializing over the we are, coming years. I think that we, if we want to meet our uh, climate neutrality targets, it has to be very rapid. Mm -hmm. But we need to be realistic as well. Klaus-Dieter Borchardt, your views about breaking this chicken and egg uh, problem? Uh, first of all, for me, it was never a chicken and egg problem because uh, for me, it is clear that you have to pursue um, supply, demand, and uh, the infrastructure at the same time. You cannot say, oh, the demand side has to wait until the infrastructure is there or enough supply, or the supply says, oh, I cannot sell it if I have not the infrastructure. Then you will uh, be, uh, I don't know, after 2050 before you have sorted that out. So you have to do it in a coordinated, parallel manner. And what you need for that, in my view, as I have said already, are clearly uh, legally binding targets. There are few. I give you only one example. You have in the refuel aviation regulation, because Professor Buzek mentioned uh, aviation. Uh, there you have uh, clear legally binding targets uh, directly applicable uh, on the demand for fuels on non-biological uh, origin. And uh, here it is, um, um, there's no difference in price between uh, the so-called refundables uh, and uh, the conventional fuels. It's clear that such a legally binding target will create a demand, at least uh, for this uh, uh, specific uh, um, demand for, uh, for aviation uh, fuels. But then there are two other elements uh, which I see um, that can also help to, to trigger the, the demand. One is another um, legally binding on member states, legally binding target in the renewable uh, directive um, that has been already adopted. And here you can see that there is the target of 
42% of hydrogen has to be uh, achieved uh, in industry uh, by 2030 and 65% uh, by um, 2035. These are targets that will help to um, get to the demand that we need. And then there's also an interesting instrument that will help, especially to decarbonize industry, and that is the recent reform of the emission trading system combined with a carbon border adjustment mechanism. Because both together will progressively bring the most important potential for industrial consumers of clean hydrogen in the EU. Because uh, with, um, within the ETS, um, it comes under the ETS, uh, all what the industry is doing. And so the industry is obliged to price uh, their carbon emissions into their costs. And uh, the higher the ETS price goes, uh, and they are losing because of the introduction of the uh, carbon border adjustment uh, mechanism, the free allowances progressively, these are real costs. So for them, there is a huge incentives in order to bring down these uh, CO2 costs uh, to uh, change their technology to a more clean technologies. So for me, these are very important uh, elements in order really to push uh, in favor of a demand. When you are asking now, so how, how do I see the, the volumes? Here I have said already I'm very, very critical to the targets that have been put out there. Personally, they're not binding, actually. No, no. 20 million. These are political aspirations, yeah. and politicians always have to have aspirations. Yeah. But unfortunately, the business cannot work on the basis of aspirations from politicians. Uh, so there has to be something meat on the bones here. And uh, what I can see, personally, what is achievable uh, by 2030 is that we replace by domestic production plus imports the current use of gray hydrogen. We are using, as, mainly as a feedstock, uh, 10 million tons per year of hydrogen today, gray hydrogen. And I believe, with uh, all these instruments that are there and good, it might be possible, as a kickoff, that we can replace these 10 million tons of gray hydrogen by clean hydrogen uh, by 2030. Okay, thanks. Maxim Peters, your perspective. So uh, Klaus-Dieter Borkat outlined, you know, all the demand pool, in a way, regulations that are being put in place at the European level. Do you believe that will kind of help, um, you know, solve this chicken and egg problem? At least it's one of the elements. Uh, indeed, uh, a very important one. Without targets, nothing would move forward. Uh, we're all convinced of that because there is that cost gap. And in the end, it's the final product where there needs to be a willingness to pay. And we see today, some companies are moving forward a bit faster. They're the pioneers, let's say. They lead the way because they want to reduce the scope three emissions. But that's willingness to pay, of course, of their end consumers that they need to be able to pay that premium for the green hydrogen. But most of the companies we see waiting, waiting till 2030, waiting till the targets kick in, hoping things will change, that Europe would flex a little bit. Um, I'm not so sure that would happen, <laughs> um, but we really see we have the pioneers and the ones waiting. And we really need to make sure um, 
that in the end the companies are able to pay as well that premium because we always talk about willingness to pay for me it's more about the ability to pay and we see that a lot of sectors are struggling really struggling with paying a premium for their product because their consumer is not willing to pay a premium good example is the car sector we really see products ending up in a car there is really upstream a willingness to pay more for a green premium because they want to build a carbon neutral car other sectors they really struggle and therefore indeed a CBAM is important. They struggle with global competition, uh, production, uh, for instance in China, India, who produce much cheaper with less legislation uh, burdening them. So we really need this protection of Europe as well with CBAM, of course uh, within reason, uh, to make sure that our industry can keep producing in this country, uh, in this region. Mr. Buzek, maybe a comment on what's been said so far, or, or shall we reserve that for later? Uh, no, I'm ready, uh, all the time I'm ready to answer okay. or, or waiting for, for next questions. You're taking stock of all the comments. Well, I've got, you see, a lot of papers. I see, I see. Uh, writing everything, what you are saying, is very important. I will use it in negotiations, in trialogue. All your arguments you should... But I would like to say a few words. If Go I, ahead. Because it was infrastructure, first of all. And an incredible question, very important. What should be first? Supply, demand, or infrastructure? Of course, uh, Professor Borchardt answered absolutely three of them together because somebody says, uh, well, um, we don't have any demand because I, we, 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 wouldn't, we, we don't see any supply. And suppliers saying we don't need to produce or generate hydrogen because there is no demand. On the other hand, if we want to have supply and demand, we have it's absolutely necessary to have infrastructure. So I'm addressing once again a retrofitting perspective in the future, which is also very important, at least in the long distance, because I understand that in. Um, distribution system, it could be some, some, some other question um, uh, if we want to, to replace uh, gas infrastructure to hydrogen infrastructure is a very specific question in this case. I think, I hope that uh, the member states proposal to establish cross-border tariffs could resonate well, we stakeholders. I'm not sure of that, but I know that it's a proposal of member states. Uh, it's, it's very important for me. And um, I understand that we should do everything, that some major barriers to the development of, development of hydrogen economy uh, must be urgently addressed um, by us policymakers and maybe in trialogue, if it is possible, immediately to, uh, to address it. Another issue is Net Zero Industry Act, which we should uh, take into account, because it's, very, it's a very good answer, excellent answer, to Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. We've got even more money than $369 uh, billion in our both budgets of the European Union, but we don't see them very well. So uh, Net Zero Industry Act maybe could help us, also from the point of view of um, 
of uh, new technologies because we've got also very important uh, uh, well regulation on, on new technologies in the EU. And I would like to underline one thing which is important in uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen speech in the European Parliament, State of the Union 2023. Well, I must tell you, energy sector was named, was didn't, was named as the most important sector for next year. Four times in 2018, 2020, 2021, 2022, in the four speeches, energy sector was the first one. Now, it was not mentioned in such a way because we decided on all the necessary directives, regulations to achieve our 2030 goal uh, fit for 55. All of them are working. So it's okay. Let us stop it. Let us say, now we need healthy industry, competitiveness of our industry, and of course without energy sector, well organized, it is impossible at all. So everywhere, even saying about agriculture and uh, security of food supply, we forgot about something like that. Security of energy supply, we understand very well. But what about food? Well, it is a question. We are in state of war, as a matter of fact, in, on our continent. So it's a quite different approach, but Energy is still the most important. I can assure you that all the relations to our economy is about energy, as a matter of fact. Energy costs, uh, electromobility, and so on, so on. So everything is around energy. And of course, our hydrogen gas package is of crucial importance in this case, also from the point of view security of supply, because somebody said not only sustainability, but also security of supply. So I am just trying to, 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 to notice everything what you are saying. It is very important for me, but because we should introduce such a regulation and directive as well, which will be supportive and we wouldn't like to change it in next years. Mm -hmm. It should be big stability of our regulation and our directives. Otherwise, we will disappear everything what is necessary to, to build in Europe. And that is indeed a, a challenge because we've been changing legislation a lot in the past years. But so let me um, stay on infrastructure more specifically uh, now. Thank you, Jerzy Buzek. Um, with a question to you, Maxim Peters, how do you see the development of hydrogen infrastructure uh, taking place in the coming years uh, when it comes to the, the localization of infrastructure, the, uh, the scale of it, and the capacity, and also maybe a reflection about what Mr. Bruzek actually mentioned, which is the repurposing of existing gas pipelines in this context? Yeah. Uh, very good comment, by the way, on the stability of the policy framework, but also the workability of that framework should be key. Uh, on infrastructure level, what do we need? We need hydrogen backbones, as we all know. 
uh, we really see positive plans being put to the table by the HNOs, as we call them, hydrogen network operators, or gas TSOs switching to becoming an HNO. Uh, the plans are quite concrete. For instance, the one in Belgium I mentioned, 2026 active in the port of Antwerp-Bruges, then connected to the German and, and other neighboring countries market by 2028. That's a very concrete plan, but budget allocated. We really need it. And indeed, we need to connect the producers and the consumers or projects won't fly. But we don't only need, of course, the backbones. We, only need, we also need facilities to import flows. Because next, complementary to local production of blue and green hydrogen, we'll also need imports. Europe is not able to supply their own meats, especially in Northwest Europe, heavily industrialized, not a lot of space, not a lot of wind and sun, so we'll need to import. It's actually a good thing, because we need to diversify our supply. I think we all learned that being dependent on one or two sources is really not what we need in Europe. We need to diversify our supply. Therefore, we need terminals, import terminals. Uh, we need it for ammonia, methanol, LOHCs, uh, e-kerosene, you name it, all of the different derivatives that we can use directly or convert back into hydrogen. We will not be dependent on one molecule. We see a lot of uh, traction on ammonia, of course, which is a key molecule for the fertilizer industry, for the chemical industry to produce caprolactam and products as such, but we also can use it as a carrier. Next to that, we'll have methanol, an important building block in our chemical industry. We produce a lot of products of uh, we produce a lot of uh, products from methanol, and it is a very high potential fuel for the maritime industry next to uh, ammonia. We see a lot of those terminals. I use Port Enter Bruges as an example, because uh, I know it the best, of course. By 2024, so next year, we'll have the first ammonia cracker in operation by Air Liquide. It's really a, a leadership example to be a pioneer with such technology, to showcase the techno-economic feasibility of such technology. By 2026, we'll have an additional ammonia terminal by VTTI group, combined with an ammonia cracker. By 2028, we'll have the Flux Advario terminal, also with an ammonia cracker in operation. So we see a lot of projects to expand that existing ammonia capacity, to expand that methanol and LOHC capacity. I just named some examples, but many are on the table. To really see that uh, those projects moving forward, because they really want to be ready when the supply comes. We see it from 2026 to 2028, the import volumes coming and then being cracked and put into the hydrogen backbone. But we see, of course, the policy framework is still a bit unclear on that level. So we sense a bit of um, nervousness in the market. For instance, in the gas package, the element on regulation of assets. We really see no need at all to regulate an ammonia thermal. We have ammonia thermals in operation today, the one of BSF, for instance, as an example. What do you do with old VSNU terminals? What do you do on the volumes that are allocated to the ammonia market and to the cracked uh, hydrogen market? We really see no need. There's enough commercial initiative. There's enough competition. I named some elements, uh, some terminals, enough competition on the ammonia terminal market. So there's no need to regulate that element at all, to our understanding. And a second element to, wi to which we're a bit concerned on the infrastructure level is the purity level of the hydrogen that will go into the backbone. A lot of discussions are going on, the 98%, 99.5. Uh, in the end, it's just a discussion, is there sulfur or CO in the pipeline? Because a lot of the hydrogen, as mentioned, will go to the feedstock market, the chemical market. Highly sensitive catalysts, they cannot deal with sulfur and CO. So to our opinion, supported by a lot of companies, we'll need this high grade, this high purity hydrogen in the backbone 
So the important off-takers can use it also in the fuel cells and we need a polishing uh, purification at the producer side. Because electrolyzer, they produce, produce clean hydrogen. Some technologies have some uh, problems with impurities. Well, let's make sure they clean it and before they put it into the pipeline. So for that, you need a dedicated new um, network, not something that is repurposed from existing gas networks? The two. Indeed, I forgot to mention that part of your question. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, we'll need the two. Uh, again, we see in, in many countries uh, the plants being, uh, uh, being drafted, and it's always a combination of old and new. Of course, we cannot repurpose the whole gas grid. We will still need gas for many, many years to come. We need to switch gradually. So, but in Belgium, we have some pipelines which will uh, no longer be necessary. Uh, so they will be repurposed to hydrogen, which is perfectly feasible. They'll not dive into the technical details, but it's perfectly feasible, combined with some new built pipelines, uh, which are dimensions towards the, the longer term potential of the hydrogen market. Okay, we'll go back to repurposing with a question to you, Maria. But before we do that, let me turn to you, uh, Klaus-Dieter Borkat, with um, a, a question about um, cross-border uh, transport uh, of hydrogen um, and uh, this question of the infrastructure uh, tariffs, which is one which is currently being uh, discussed. <laughs> Indeed. So is, is there a way uh, to mutualize costs maybe um, from, from your users or what, what are your views there? Uh, let me start. Uh, these are two different uh, issues. Huh? Um, the one is uh, the cross the cross border tariffs, and then the mutualization. Let's uh, separate this because they, they cannot be mixed. Um, I'm very happy because uh, Mr. Buzik still sees in me the director at the Commission, and I'm very happy to say when I'm now explaining you the problem of the cross border tariffs that I had the same problem already with regard to the gas system because. Back when I was still uh, in duty, there was also already the thinking uh, to remove the cross-border tariffs for natural gas. And uh, I was at that moment already against that. And fortunately, it never saw the light of the day. It was a study, and the result of the study said we have to remove it. And now, in the Commission proposal, uh, we see this now for the hydrogen network. And I haven't changed my mind. I think it's a very bad idea. So why, why is that? Yeah. Um, so the, the problem behind, and that's I have to explain that you see uh, the full picture. The problem behind uh, and why uh, the Commission was and is still so keen to remove uh, cross-border tariffs is the so-called pancaking issue. And because of the pancaking issue, the Commission believes um, that uh, the cross-border transport tariffs hinder the trade. So tariff pancaking happens when hydrogen has to cross multiple market zones. And uh, whenever it crosses one market zone, it is charged uh, the tariff. That's the cross-border tariff. At each border, you have uh, the, the tariff, interconnection point tariffs, if you like. And now, um, they, the idea is to say if for each market zone, when the flow goes through more than one market zone, you have one tariff layer after the other that comes on top of uh, the transport cost. The transport cost uh, gets so high so that the flows become even uneconomic 
especially uh, when um, the tariff for the uh, needed capacity for the flows is higher than the price difference between two of these markets. So that's what uh, is in uh, the, the reasoning behind uh, the removal of the uh, cross-border tariffs. For me, it is absolutely not clear what the problem is here. Um, and what the Commission really wants to solve with removing these cross-border torrents. Because let us take two um, possible scenarios. You have the scenarios that you have a lot of supply, and um, if you have a lot of supply, there is much less need in order to uh, use cross-border transports. You are not exporting, you are just uh, using it. And also, the uh, price differential uh, between two markets uh, are below um, the transport cost. If you have scarcity in supply, the situation is different. The price differential between the, the markets uh, rise and the regulated uh, transport cost um, uh, above the regulated transport cost because the demand for hydrogen is greater than the cross-border cross capacity, and that brings the prices up. But for me, this is exactly what the market should do. This is inherent of uh, what we have seen as uh, the market functioning. I have two other arguments where I don't uh, see that uh, the, the Commission in this case has taken into account two elements that... Uh, cushion a bit the, the, the results of the um, pancaking effect. The, the first is what we have seen uh, over years in the gas sector, and it will come in the hydrogen sector, is the possibility of swaps. You are not sending hydrogen from point A to B all the time because you can also have different entry points and then you swap. So to reduce uh, the distance uh, of transport. And that, of course, is economically very interesting because you have less uh, uh, transport um, distances uh, to do. And then the second thing is, uh, although you are uh, very much uh, supporting the big backbone right from the beginning, I see also the possible movement that, um, for instance, um, that the production will co-locate with the consumption, what we already see in the ports. Uh, there, of course, uh, this pancaking effect is absolutely uh, absent. And uh, the other is also that hydrogen users might also go closer uh, to the production uh, centers. Again, uh, in that case, it is also no uh, pancaking effect. But what matters maybe even more is not why the pancaking issue is, in my view, not a real issue. It is the removal of the cross-border uh, tariffs will uh, create new problems and even bigger problems than uh, what uh, the Commission uh, envisaged uh, through the pancaking effect. Network operators today receive allowed revenues, and these allowed revenues are consistent with a regulated rate of return on their regulated asset base. That's the principle. These um, revenues are recovered by the tariffs. And the tariffs are regulated and cost-reflected. So 
cross-border tariffs simply reflects the cost of investment and the cost of moving hydrogen uh, from one network to another. That's uh, what uh, it does. By removing the cross-border tariffs, network operators will still have to recover the same amount of revenue. But they will not be able anymore to recover it at the uh, cross-border points. Now, they have to calculate how to recover their uh, revenues from the cross-border flows from entry tariffs. These are the, the, uh, where hydrogen is injected into the system. And exit tariffs, where hydrogen is taken out of the system. Uh, this requires, and this is now important, to, to do this calculation, this requires different networks with different regulators and different allowed revenues have to agree to share the costs of transporting the hydrogen across the networks. And this has to be done by an uh, inter-TSO transmission system operator compensation mechanism. That has to be created. And that was when I go back to my experience in the natural gas system, when we have uh, put uh, the idea uh, of this inter-TSO compensation mechanisms for natural gas, uh, it was an absolute no-go. Absolute no-go because when you are doing this, you are redistributing money, which is not related directly to the investment that has been done on uh, the, uh, the course. So, maximum of complexity for member states and national regulatory authorities. Um, and not only that this mechanism has to be negotiated once, every time you are adding a hydrogen infrastructure, this in a mechanism has to be recalculated, renegotiated in the light of the changing network uh, overall between 27 parties. It's a nightmare. And if you uh, imagine for a moment that these negotiations start once the, uh, um, the rules are in force, it will take years, if not longer, <laughs> if it comes anyway to an end, to negotiate such a mechanism. And therefore, we will lose a lot of time uh, in order uh, to start really uh, repurposing and rebuilding the companies. I want to close with um, maybe three uh, crucial points for you, Mr. Buzik, uh, which, which one should keep in mind, uh, and it's a quintessence of what I tried to explain. For me, um, this removal of uh, cross-border tariffs, or the zero IP tariffs, as they are called, confuses the grid users because uh, it creates the misleading impression that there are no costs. Oh, the Commission wants to remove the cross-border costs, so there are no costs. False. These are, in fact, non-visible costs. As I said, the revenues uh, have to be collected through tariffs, and therefore, somewhere in the system, the fees have to be collected and have to be attributed to the uh, operators. But for the users, these tariffs which are now regulated, visible, and uh, transparent, they are non-visible. There's no transparency, 
and um, um, visibility for the users. The second is for the investors. If I would be an investor today, I would have uh, my doubts how much do I get as a return on my investment? Because uh, with the system, that can change all the time, and I don't know really uh, how the calculation is done, etc., etc. And um, lack of transparency, that might, in my view, also have a very negative impact on um, investors being ready uh, to invest now in uh, the necessary uh, framework. And finally, um, just removing the cross-border tariffs would just kick the can down the road, as I said. Because um, if you do that, you have uh, in the other system, the flows uh, within Europe will change, uh, and it might even end up that the entry and exit tariffs that you uh, then uh, install will lead to much higher tariffs than uh, um, the one that we have uh, today with the cross-border tariffs. Is that therefore to be supported on the lifetime uh, cross-border uh, tariffs? In my view, no. But cross-border tariffs should fall in the context of merging markets. As we have seen, uh, for instance, in the Baltics, between uh, Denmark and Sweden, they have merged the markets. And when you are merging the markets, of course, the intra-cross-border tariffs go away. They fall. And that is a voluntary decision by the member states and the NRAs. And so the removal of the cross-border tariffs should remain voluntary and should be a decision that is taken in the context of the market merger, but it should not be imposed uh, as it is now uh, proposed by the Commission, at least, because uh, of the negative impacts that I have tried uh, to uh, lay out today. Okay, a strong warning there by Klaus Dieter Borchardt. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll come back to that, uh, I guess, a bit later on, but Mara Cecilia, maybe. Um, when it comes to repurposing of existing uh, natural uh, gas infrastructure, what are the economics uh, behind this and, and how can that be made also affordable from the consumer's uh, perspective? Thank you. May I react very quickly to what Professor Borchardt just said? Uh, security of supply is about investment. And if we want to invest in, in, in infrastructure, we need tariffs. So we fully share that zero IP tariffs will not will, will create uh, uncertainty, and is not uh, uh, will make cross-border infrastructure less attractive. Coming to the point on on repurposing, uh, clearly, uh, but but I, I also want to also to react uh, to what uh, Maxim uh, said on class or clusters versus uh, pan-European cross-border infrastructures. Um, we want to make this as efficient as possible. And we know now that the resources, the cheap resources for producing green hydrogen are far away from demand centers. So it is possible to have a cluster approach, but if we favor too much class or derogations favoring too much a cluster approach, we will miss that part and we will make the, the whole value chain uh, more expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, and third, 
in this, uh, in, with this aim of, of, of bringing as much efficient, economic efficiency as possible, repurposing is a cost competitive option, of course. It is, uh, um, the cost of repurposing is, is, makes, uh, is, is, is about 30% of the cost of building a new pipeline. Mm -hmm. In the case of a 20 inches uh, wide uh, pipeline, it's around 20% cheaper for wider for sizes. Um, so it's clearly cost competitive. Uh, it's not always available because there are new uh, supply uh, regions, um, for example, in the Baltics, where there is very little gas infrastructure deployed currently, but where there is uh, uh, natural gas uh, infrastructure in place. It's always the cheaper and, and option. And this holds as well for imports. Uh, of course, uh, again, uh, a very important point, we will need imports. Those countries that are well positioned with infrastructure already in place is the case of Ukraine, with um, also vast renewable uh, resources and, 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 and full infrastructure in place. Can, th that can be a, a very good option. Then, of course, liquids will also be needed. We have al already uh, planned and current and planned capacity to import, uh, at least uh, according to our uh, estimations, 4.55 million tons by 2030. So security of supply, in my view, is about investment. It's about investment and diversity. And uh, yes, we need to make this, uh, the, the regulatory framework right for that. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay, let me turn to you, Jerzy Brzezek, because um, we'll turn then to questions from the audience. Uh, a few reflections from everything we've heard. Um, when it comes now to the trilogues which will uh, um, uh, which are about to take place uh, well uh, thank you very much for for all your remarks i know very well that i have provoked you as a matter of fact uh, to to put a question on on tariffs or cross-border tariffs because this it is very important issue from the point of european parliament because uh, probably we had the heaviest discussion on that topic in the European Parliament. At the end, we, we, we decided by, let's say, majority that it should be like our proposal. So I am listening to you very carefully, knowing the position of, of member states, uh, the Council, the Council, generally speaking, and, and I understand also uh, well, infrastructure, the big European infrastructure, stakeholders. Uh, Antwerp Port is, is a big stakeholder and uh, would like to, uh, to, 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 to tackle the issue of costs. Uh, so thank you very much. Also, well, I will take it into account in our discussion in the European Parliament. I would like to, uh, to, to repeat your statement. Uh, I understand uh, uh, professor, uh, dear Klaus Dieter, that uh, cross-border transport tariffs, if I notice here, we not increase as a matter of fact, generally speaking, of hydrogen transport, because they will simply spread those costs across the infrastructure. So it means, um, generally speaking, uh, reflecting the cost of investment. So it's absolutely necessary to, by your opinion, but will be not easy in European Parliament, I must it's tell you. the cost of investment plus the cost of the transport, the real transport. Yeah. These are the two elements and they are not going away. 
Yeah. And uh, that's why uh, it is uh, a bad idea. Well, very, very important, as you know, from point of view of, of uh, well, uh, a regulation which we prepared in European Parliament. <laughs> so it's a heavy discussion from my point of view. And um, I try to translate all your remarks to our regulation or, or to our directive, because I feel responsible for that. And we wouldn't like to change it in two years or something, or, or three years, if it is not working properly. So we have done something with electricity market design. But we had, uh, well, incredible COVID, first of all, and then war. So in the case of war and Russia and all the problems, horrible problems with Russia, it was impossible to keep it longer, maybe, and to help uh, uh, European industry and also the electricity sector uh, to, to, to make it working, everything. But in the case of such a regulation, because my, my last remark in this place, that we should imagine the electricity energy sector future in the European Union will be two um, uh, energy most important uh, uh, um, for, for energy, in electricity and hydrogen, two of them, maybe 70% electricity, 20% hydrogen. But we will have also some, some biomass, well-defined, should be well-defined, and biomethane, it means natural gas. From the chemical point of view, biomethane is the same as natural gas. So we should see the future energy sector with two energy careers, which are not in nature. Hydrogen and electricity they are not present in nature. We should produce them. I'm saying from renewables, and maybe from nuclear, but I'm saying it's very, <laughs> not very openly. But still, it's a quite new point of view for our energy, energy sector. We should imagine that. So we are discussing about something like that. And uh, to merge together electricity and, and uh, gas and hydrogen, because we will have in the future uh, 100 billion cubic meter of biomethane in the European Union. In 2030, we should have 35 billion. But they say we can have even 60, 70, but maybe more in the future. Uh, so as a biomethane will be also used in, in, in long future, like say, 2050, 2060. So from that point of view, it's a from one side, very simple energy market, and on the other side, quite different than today, completely different. Methanol, uh, methanol and, and, and uh, ammonia was, was mentioned. I'm not using the names methanol, methanol and ammonia because it's too complicated for public opinion, as a matter of fact. We should say hydrogen, green hydrogen, full stop. If we use it in, in, in air transport, ammonia uh, is even better than, than, uh, than the fuel for today, they say, and, uh, and uh, methanol in, 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 in maritime 
is another issue, because everything is hydrogen, green hydrogen. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to say that. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. So um, let me now uh, turn to questions uh, yeah. from the audience. Yeah. Um, we had a few questions, I believe, already kind of answered, so um, I won't take them. It's about the stage development of, of the hydrogen market, which I think we've mostly addressed. There's one that we haven't addressed so far, which is coming from Nuclear Europe. Um, and this is addressed, um, um, I think, to you, Maxime. So uh, how do you see the integration of nuclear-powered hydrogen production facilities, uh, such as small modular reactors, in hydrogen hubs like the port of Antwerp Bruges? Yeah, never debate without nuclear, right? <laughs> um, well, uh, today we see that uh, for the case in Belgium, let's talk about that case, that's the only one I know quite well on nuclear. The policy is quite clear, right? We're closing down capacity, we'll prolong other capacities, but they will be much needed for the electricity need in our country. Um, so just for electricity alone, we will need that capacity. There is no real policy on new developments. There's an openness because Belgium has a lot of expertise in nuclear, so let's use that. But for now, there's no commitment on building new capacity. Um, so it's hard to, uh, to say something about new capacity when the policy framework is not working with us. Yeah. Um, and to my humble opinion, we will need nuclear capacity for electricity needs first. Okay, thanks. Anybody else wants to react? No. Just confirm what Maxim said. I can yeah, yeah, not be quite clear. Yeah, can quite speculative. Uh, SMRs, there's a lot of talk about it, but not many projects actually. Yeah, we differ from country to country in European Union, but in general, the approach is quite clear, and we can agree. And I would like to see uh, the cost calculation, because uh, even SMRs, uh, they are less expensive than fully fledged nuclear power plant, but they are still expensive. And they are in the, let's say, kinder shoes. Huh? Uh, they are not yet uh, fully developed, and uh, so the prototypes will be even more expensive, etc. And then just using them to produce hydrogen will not be enough. The cost uh, are much too high. So therefore, it, it has to be also directly electricity use. And then you are in the political debate, uh, do we want uh, nuclear in the electricity? Yeah, of course, but we cannot stop nuclear power station no. so easily. So sometimes it's absolutely France necessary it to produce hydrogen. Yeah. We should recognize it. That it no is other possibility. Yes, we should not yeah. exclude yeah. it. Yeah. Well, yeah. The business case will decide. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So one question about the usage uh, of hydrogen, and that's coming from uh, somebody at Food and Water Action Europe. They're an NGO. Uh, to you, Mr. Buzik, uh, in fact about the uses of hydrogen. Uh, she's asking, um, you know, the, there should be a, a debate about where to use it and where not to use it. So uh, in places like heating, um, road transport, um, they're saying this would considerably help this chicken and egg problem, for example. In, in long-term perspective, we cannot Im imagine uh, decarbonization of uh, Europe uh, without using hydrogen in the case of, they say, even heavy transport, road transport, not only maritime or, 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 or air transport. On the other hand, uh, we should remember on local level, Professor Borchard mentioned it, uh, local level of production and distribution 
is very important and we should create something like um, communities in, in some territory of districts of or a few municipalities uh, to, to, to create all the necessary demand and also supply of, uh, of energy uh, in this uh, small territory. And from that point of view, we cannot imagine future without hydrogen and, of course, uh, electricity storage. Uh, today, the general um, uh, approach to the issue, produ uh, generating, producing hydrogen from electricity uh, using electrolyzers, and then producing from hydrogen electricity back, is a uh, general. We need we 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 lose at least uh, 65, 70 percent of energy. So it is not very high. Um, percent, like in old coal power stations. Uh, so, uh, in the future, we expect that it will be maybe 50% uh, or maybe 40% we will lose in such a way. So, we should remember that, uh, first of all, we should use electricity, if it is possible, everywhere. In some cases, like, because it was a question of using hydrogen, in the case of uh, steel or, or fertilizers, chemical industry is absolutely necessary to hydrogen. There is no other possibility at all. And in the case of heavy transport, road transport, they say it could be even electricity I've been uh, accumulating, and probably it is possible, but not in the case of maritime and and uh, and. Um, uh, or, or uh, air transport, so from that point of view, it's absolutely mm -hmm. necessary to go to hydrogen. Klaus Dieter Borkart, maybe a reflection on this. I mean, the use cases for hydrogen, that has evolved quite considerably over the years. I mean, we've, we were thinking of using hydrogen for heavy-duty uh, vehicles, road transport for light-duty vehicles, it's almost out of the question. And even for heavy-duty, it's now electrification is becoming more and more uh, competitive. Um, I mean, are there now clear cases where hydrogen should not be used? First of all, I agree with you that uh, I remember when we started uh, writing uh, the hydrogen strategy for Europe. I was still in the commission there and uh, we, we had plenty of used cases there. Plenty. All you have mentioned them. And over the years, one after the other got lost. So uh, what remains for me is uh, definitely uh, what Maxime already said, uh, the industries that have, or Mr. Buzik has said as well, uh, has absolutely no other choice. And this uh, choice uh, will be used or has to be used obligatory very, very soon when, as I said, uh, the combination of ETS and uh, CBAM uh, kicks in. Because they and they have to prepare it by now. So there, I see a huge uh, demand uh, coming up. And then, of course, uh, there are still. I mentioned uh, the refuel aviation, uh, uh, or the even on member states, the, the 42 percent or 65 percent uh, of usage of uh, renewable hydrogen in the industry. These are uh, elements uh, that will uh, contribute to it. 
but if I still may do the link to the infrastructure, what is important, I think Mr. Busek said that at the beginning, but I would like to repeat that. For me, uh, whatever usage you take, what is absolutely vital, because you have not only hydrogen, you have electricity, you have district heating, by the way, and you have still natural gas, that you need to do a common planning. That is also still something, Mr. Buzik, that is still open in the discussion, because I think the parliament is for an integrated planning at national and at EU level. Uh, council and, and commission uh, seems to be another view, and I don't understand that especially at the European level, how in the hell will you uh, give the right answers for the off-taking demand and the supply if you are not having a holistic view on uh, the infrastructure needed, and not only for hydrogen, but uh, for all the other uh, networks as well? Only then you get the full picture, and then you can also take maybe the decisions which carrier is the most lucrative, the, the best business case for me. But if you have to look at through different plans in order to make your own picture uh, how, how it looks uh, for your business, uh, that's, that's not uh, going to work. So I think um, the demand question here you can see is also uh, intrinsically linked uh, to a common and integrated planning. Yeah. Maria Cecilia, maybe a reflection yeah, on no, integrated planning. Exactly, because no, no, definitely it's not just that hydrogen and natural gas to plan to, uh, jointly is needed in order to do the repurposing or the phase out of the existing grid. Is that, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Mr. Busek, the future of the energy sector in Europe will be 70% based electricity, and from electricity we will produce the hydrogen. So it's impossible to do this efficiently. Green electricity, of course. Uh, definitely. And, and, <laughs> and hydrogen can play a, a crucial role, critical role, in stabilizing yeah. the network, allowing for uh, higher shares of renewables, avoiding curtailments. Th this is very key. Yeah, the excess uh, electricity that is now curtailed, yeah. uh, this is a waste of money. It's yeah. billions that are spent there. Yeah. Yeah. The more integrated planning, I guess, that would require probably some of the member states, or, or actually all of them, giving up some of their uh, regulatory competences to some kind of, you know, European uh, level, which uh, is always a difficult politically. But they have jump, to jump over that fence. Uh, I, I could imagine that uh, for certain well-justified reasons, they keep doing it at the national level separately or not, not fully integrated. But at the European level, there is absolutely no alternative because mm -hmm. you cannot get uh, the full system working if you are not uh, having a common planning. It's not, it, for me, it's not thinkable. Maxim we Peters, have, have as well CO2. So uh, from that point of view, integration of three energy systems, electricity, maybe as the most important, hydrogen as gas is necessary because we will still have a some gas in the future. Uh, I, I mean biomethane, because it's, uh, it is produced from green wastes, so it's uh, renewable gas. So from that point of view, we would like to use it also in future, and um, in 2050, 2030, and maybe 7 to 8 billion cubic meter will be possible in the European Union.
That's a very good example because uh, if your figures are right with the biomethane up to 100 BCM, then of course, because BCM, um, biomethane uh, can be used uh, by or transported via the existing gas network. Yeah, so yeah. therefore, this is important. Well, Fertilizers production, for example. Discussion, yeah. huh? because you cannot, yeah. uh, you should then also take into account which pipelines should stay for gases, for yeah. natural yeah. gases yeah. or green gases, in that sense, uh, for bio fertilizers production, we should use probably in the future biomethane. Why so not? it is possible, absolutely. On the other hand, uh, we should also remember that uh, electricity is the first. Like we, like we say that, uh, um, well, uh, in, in the past, well, renewables uh, and, uh, well, uh, energy saving, mm -hmm. energy saving was the first. Now electricity is the first. Even being responsible for hydrogen, I'm saying electricity, the first. <laughs> because it's quite obvious. Maxim Peters, and then we'll have a round of closing statements, but very quickly on the need for more integrated planning on a European level. I mean, does that make sense to you? Maybe on the biomethane, let's also forget synthetic methane, which we can produce from renewables and green hydrogen. Could be a potential yeah. solution. Yeah. On the infrastructure, I'll come back to my previous point. I think on the backbones, <laughs> for sure, we need a hydrogen backbone that's quite clear to connect all the different clusters, production and demand, quite clear. Uh, as we did with, uh, with the natural gas network, I think we can see a nice uh, comparison. But on the thermals, no. I think there's so much commercial initiative and we're gonna kill that commercial initiative if we put too much planning into place. We see enough initiative to, to assure the fact that we'll have a stable supply. Let's let the market play within a clear framework, of course, yeah, a level playing field, that's quite, quite important. But let's not over-regulate because that will kill market initiative and we really feel it, that could happen. Okay. Maybe one word, because that, that irritates me, I must say, because um, for me, the planning is not that the politicians tell you where the terminal has to go. The planning is that uh, the, if you, as a business, have decided terminals go here and there and there, that these decisions are taken up in the overall planning and to coordinate that with the planning of other uh, networks which is, you might say it's not necessary uh, because there you are working uh, in, a, in a smaller uh, cluster. But uh, for me, uh, to take up uh, the locations and also the connections from the terminals then to the consumption centers is something that needs to go into the planning. Okay, but then I agree. If, it's, if the it's marketplace can take their initiative, Yes. And then it's taking up in the overall planning. It's not agree. planning. It needs to be bottom up, essentially, is yeah. what you're saying. And I agree. Yeah. Um, we need to wrap soon. So let me turn to you, uh, Mr. Buzik, first for some thoughts after everything that you've heard uh, today during this conference. Now you're going to the trilogues. Are there any, you know, uh, essential points that you would like to, uh, uh, to make? Uh, Everything what we were talking about is a central point of our regulation and directive. So I am listening very carefully to everything, all your questions from the audience, very important. And uh, from, from my perspective, uh, it is rather necessary to listen today. And I wouldn't like, I hope, I haven't had any new idea during our discussion because I would like to listen to you 
uh, your, the, 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 the Palmerists. And um, I can say quite generally uh, what is very important, regulatory framework for hydrogen, gas, hydrogen, very, very important energy sectors, uh, integration is maybe the most important issue. And to avoid uh, market fragmentation, we are derogations. It was mentioned by somebody in the discussion, derogations could be from that point of view very dangerous from from point of view of fragmentation. And uh, at the end, of course, security of supply, because without uh, security of supply, we would like to, 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 to have any prosperity in the EU and uh, everything which is net zero industry act is about as a matter of security of our economy. Generally speaking, it is grounded on electricity and hydrogen sector. Energy sector is absolutely fundamental. For four years, we have done everything in the EU what was necessary to do to prepare ourselves to 2030, 2050 uh, um, demand. And, and now, let us think on competitiveness of our economy in the big scale, also geopolitics in this uh, big scale, CBAM was mentioned, and so on, so on. So now we are, we are saying the same, but in, but in different way, from the point of view of economy, generally speaking, and also our uh, social acceptance to, to everything what we are doing today, because at the end, in 2050, we would like to have a full support of our public opinion in uh, 27 years, is our expectation. Maxim Peters, so um, closing statement from your end. If you had maybe just one recommendation to make to, to Mr. Buzik and the other policymakers oh. uh, as they enter the trilogue, yeah, what, yeah. what would that be? Antwerp should better play football <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> well, I will, they are I will support the your... Now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they grew substantially, but I'm not a football okay. fan, so I okay. care less. Um, no, first of all, I'm proud to be European. I think Europe is doing a great job at being a pioneer, at being so audacious to putting the targets there, to move forwards. Uh, to set an example to the rest of the world. Uh, quite proud of that. I think it's uh, one of the most important words that I heard in this debate is from Mr. Uh, Butchek, is prosperity. I'm truly afraid that we will lose it. We need to make sure that we combine climate neutrality with prosperity, that we let technologies grow, that we keep industry here and growing, uh, that we create a market which is such a great uh, mechanism in, in Europe. So let's try to keep those two elements in mind and combine them, climate neutrality, but let's not forget prosperity, make work workable targets, give support to the industries, uh, so we can keep playing this pioneer role, 2030, 2040, and beyond. Okay, Klausi Tavorkat, one recommendation to policymakers, would it be about the cross-border infrastructure tariffs or something else? I think I have said uh, what I think about that. No, uh, I have another message, very brief. Uh, don't overcomplicate things mm. right now. Um, look at what is needed in order to let businesses breathe and to develop and uh, to uh, get their investments on the ground and support uh, this. 
So at this stage, don't develop structures or rule, rules uh, which creates unnecessary costs, burdens, and regulation. Uh, I, I compare that now today uh, with what uh, we have done so far for a well-functioning integrated gas market. We did not do that in one go. We needed three uh, packages, gas packages, in order to get where we are today with the gas market. And to believe that in hydrogen we could do that in one shot is not uh, uh, reasonable. And therefore, I leave it by saying um, uh, perfection is the enemy of the good. So don't try to be perfect, just be good in the sense uh, to achieve as far as we can the targets and to help businesses to make uh, their business cases uh, work. Maria Cecilia, maybe one final yeah. recommendation. Uh, I would like to highlight the existing momentum. There are concrete projects. Now operators are investing and hopefully will show that the te technical barriers can be overcome. Uh, we need, of course, to the risk those projects in order to take uh, FIDs. Um, some sort of, during the ramp-up, some sort of support either to end-users or to operators in the form of state guarantees can, can be really helpful in this, for this aim. But more importantly, what we need is a regulatory framework that removes the barriers. And which is future-proof as well. Yeah. Right, um, I think uh, this takes us to the end of this conference. Uh, big thanks again to NSOG for supporting it. Big thanks to our panelists, of course, uh, for being uh, with us today and to our audience here in the room uh, and also online. If you missed uh, the beginning of this conference, you can uh, watch it again on YouTube and uh, other uh, social media platforms. And if you're interested to know more about your active events, please go to our website, events.youractive.com. I think that's all for me. So looking forward to speak to you another time. Bye-bye. <laughs>